A man who had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer spoke to me these words through his tears while sitting in a hospital bed. What have I ever done to deserve this kind of punishment? He meant it as a serious question. A woman who had just lost her 23-year-old son in an automobile accident pulled me aside in the funeral home and said to me, how could God be so cruel as to take my only child away like this? A man who had just been let go by his company after 23 years of faithful work stopped at my church office on his way home that day simply to voice this question. If God loves me so much, why would he blow up my career like this? A 49-year-old woman whose husband had recently left her and who had recently been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis stood up in the middle of the divorce recovery workshop that I was facilitating and with fists clenched screamed into the air of that space, I feel like God is targeting me and I don't even know what I've done wrong. And on September 13th, 2001, two days after September 11th, a prominent evangelical preacher offered this reason for the terrorist attack. God has removed his protection from this nation because God is outraged at this nation's rampant immorality. And make no mistake about it, this preacher continued, God will not be mocked. Each one of those expressions, I suppose, emerges from a certain theological premise. And it is a premise that I have encountered frequently over the years in the thinking of many intelligent people who either believe in God or who are struggling to believe in God. The premise is that God is the primary originator and strategic administrator of human suffering. A theological starting point that ultimately leads to the interpretation of suffering as a calculated comeuppance for personal sins that God feels compelled to punish. Complicating matters is that there are many scriptures that if isolated and interpreted literally and without nuance, support the premise. But the problem is what the premise implies about the character of God, right? Specifically, that the creator of the universe is at heart a cold or perhaps even cruel overseer who is regularly about the work of crafting, generating human suffering, and then assigning it to particular persons as a punishment for sins of which they may or may not be aware. And in the scripture that we just heard from John's gospel, it becomes painfully clear to us that that theological premise is not new. It's not modern. 
Quite the contrary, it was part of the theological climate of the first century. Case in point, Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who has been blind from birth. Rabbi, the disciples ask, and please pay careful attention to the question that the disciples ask. It is a theologically loaded question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. You see, these disciples are harboring a deeply held theological worldview. A theological worldview in which this man's blindness could only be interpreted as an act of divine punishment for sin. Either the man's sin or his parents' sin for which he was being held accountable. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And in what I consider to be one of the most revelatory and perhaps even revolutionary moments in all of biblical history, Jesus responds to the disciples' question essentially by telling them that their worldview is broken. That their worldview is distorted. Disciples, Jesus essentially says, you're thinking about this in all the wrong ways. This man's blindness is not a punishment for sin. Which is to say, this man's blindness, this man's struggle, this man's suffering is not the result of God's orchestration and assignment of human misery. And please do not miss the importance of this in the unfolding of biblical history. This is critical. In this world that was eager to see this man's blindness as either God's marksmanship or God's indifference. Jesus utilizes the man's blindness to expand the vision, the theological vision of his disciples and us all these years later. This man's blindness is not a divine punishment for sin, Jesus says, thereby going against a long history of theological thought about God's retributive justice. This man's blindness is not a punishment for sin. Rather, Jesus essentially says, this man was born blind simply because he was born blind. And so that God might be able to accomplish creative and redemptive things even in the context of his blindness. And with that, Jesus spits on the ground. An interesting little detail in the story, right? I'll say to you confessionally that I was originally going to entitle this sermon, Spit Happens. <laughs> but wiser minds talked me out of my irreverence so that I could simply report on it now. Um, but Jesus spits on the ground moistening the mud enough to make a balm. And we're left wondering about Jesus' methodology here. Why would, he, why would he engage the messiness of saliva and dirt? What is that all about? And the truth of the matter is, we do not really know. It might have had something to do with the fact that in the first century, it was often believed that even the saliva of a righteous person would carry with it a portion of that person's life force and energy and character. And so it might have been that Jesus was simply employing this methodology because he knew that it would mean something to this blind man. 
Or Jesus may have been calling to mind the creative power of God because remember in Genesis we are told that God created humankind, how? Out of the dust of the earth. And so by spitting into that dust, Jesus may very well have been making the point that he was accessing the very same creative grace that brought the world into existence. We do not know for certain. But irrespective of what Jesus had in mind, he spits into the dust, dampening it enough to make a balm, and then he spreads the balm on this blind man's eyes, and then he gives to him a very specific instruction. Go and wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was very close to the temple, part of it, in fact, and people who would be heading into the temple would often pause, people of faith, and wash themselves briefly in this pool as a ritualistic and symbolic act of cleansing and purification as they made their way into communities worship. And so by instructing this blind man to go to that pool, maybe Jesus accomplishes a couple of things. In the first place, maybe he establishes a new connection between this blind man and the faith community. But he may also be making the point that the divine grace that heals is the same as the divine grace that forgives and cleanses and purifies. The same grace emerging from the same divine heart. And so the man goes and washes his eyes and we're told that immediately, in a way that we cannot understand, this man whose eyes had not functioned for his entire life began to function perfectly. The man sees. I don't know how it is that you relate to these healing moments in Jesus' ministry. They're important. They're important. And I would suspect that probably some of you depending upon your life circumstances find yourself wondering, well, I sure would love to experience a physical healing that dramatic in my journey. Maybe you're struggling with some physical ailment and have been struggling with it for quite some time and you know that a physical healing like that from God would go a long way in your journey. I can relate to that. But I will remind you of something and I'll say this often related to the healing ministry of Jesus as much as I believe in it. The physical healing that this blind man experiences in Scripture, as impressive as it is, is not the lasting miracle in the story. I simply want you to be mindful of that. The physical healing is not the lasting miracle in the story. And I say that because the blind man who was healed is not still walking around telling the story. He died of something else. He regained his sight, thanks be to God, but maybe next year he died of a heart attack or maybe five years later he died of cancer it's the nature of physical healing it never lasts right in this world that groans for redemption physical healing is never a lasting miracle and maybe that's part of why Jesus in the Gospels was always instructing people not to fixate on the physical signs the external signs they're not what's most important no the lasting miracle in this story quite frankly is Jesus' healing of the disciples' broken way of looking at the world, broken way of understanding God's relationship with with human suffering. 
Remember, these disciples were fully prepared to interpret that man's blindness and already had in their thinking. They were fully prepared to interpret this man's blindness as a sign of divine punishment. And Jesus does something truly miraculous. He incarnates a new way of looking at the world in their presence. A new theological worldview in which suffering can be interpreted not as a sign of divine punishment, but as an opportunity for divine engagement. A new worldview in which suffering can be interpreted not as a curse, but as a context for a deeper connection with the divine heart. A new worldview in which God can be reconceptualized, not not as the originator of human suffering, not as the assigner of human suffering, but as a compassionate parent who willingly steps into the suffering of God's beloved children so that the suffering will not hold dominion over their spirit. The healing of the blind man was impressive, but the healing of the disciples' worldview is the lasting miracle and the one that we are continuing to celebrate even this morning. August 18th of 1951, a guy by the name of David Steinberg was born with no arms and badly deformed legs. He spent the first few years of his life in hospitals, including the Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia, where he underwent one orthopedic surgery after another. At the age of eight, Jeff Steinberg learned how to walk with special braces on his legs, and in that same year, he was fitted with his very first prosthetic arm. At the age of nine, he was made a ward of the state of Pennsylvania and placed in the Good Shepherd home for the physically handicapped in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he lived until he was 19. Thanks to the efforts of a local husband and wife who seemed to be determined for some strange reason to develop a loving relationship with Jeff Steinberg, thanks to their efforts, Jeff came to know family and connection and security and church and faith and what he describes as the relentlessly compelling gospel of Jesus. And it was in his connection to the church that Jeff discovered he had an aptitude for music. And he came to the conclusion that he wanted music to be a part of his vocation. He didn't know how. He knew that there would always be limitations, but he couldn't get away from this sense of calling. And I heard Jeff Steinberg sing for the first time at a Sunday evening church conference in 1982. And I went to the conference reluctantly. But I sat that night in the sanctuary mesmerized by this diminutive man with no arms, artificial arms, and abnormally short legs, singing about the goodness of God. Lord, let me be the love you share today, were some of the words that he sang that night. Lord, let me be the love you share today. Use me, Lord, to manifest your care today. This is all I ask, that you perform this task. And Lord, let me be the love you share. And at some point that night, he offered these words of testimony. It wasn't long, it wasn't maudlin, but these were the words that he offered. You know, for the longest time, I looked upon my malformations as God's way of telling me that I didn't matter or that I'd done something horribly wrong. 
or that God, that God didn't care enough about me to protect me from this kind of pain. But the more I lived into the gospel, he said, that was the exact way he put it, the more I lived into the gospel, the more I came to believe two important miracles. The first miracle is that I am fearfully and wonderfully made just the way I am. And the second miracle is that my life tells a unique and beautiful story that no other life can tell the way mine can. And as I look back on that, it occurs to me that I was in the presence of a man who, like the disciples, was experiencing a miraculous new way of looking at the world in Jesus. A new way of looking at the world in which suffering can be interpreted not as a manifestation of divine punishment, but as an opportunity for a transformational intimacy with the divine heart. A new way of looking at the world in which God is not the originator of suffering, but a compassionate parent who walks alongside God's precious children in the midst of even the most profound suffering so that it will not hold dominion over them and so that their lives might be set free to tell the beautiful story that only their lives can tell. See, the healing of the blind man was impressive. The transformation of a worldview, that's a lasting miracle. I see evidence of it up close and personally, don't you? People coming into this new way of looking at the world, people having the opportunity to understand God differently because of who Jesus is. I do not believe God gave to me this cancer, a woman said to me as her pastor five days after a heartbreaking diagnosis. I do not believe God gave to me this cancer. In fact, she said with a smile, I'm imagining God's more upset about this cancer than I am because I know God loves me more than I love myself. And I thought that was such an incredible way of looking at it. So she said, here's what I'm choosing to believe. She straightened herself up in the hospital bed and she said, I choose to believe that God is going to show up. God's going to show up in the cancer and in my chemotherapy treatments, and in my pain, and in my frustrating conversations with the medical professionals, and with my tender, in my tender conversations with my family members, I choose to believe that God is going to show up so that my cancer is more about life than it is about death. And as her pastor, in that moment, I sat back in the chair and I smiled and I said to her, you know what? You're the kind of disciple I want to be when I grow up. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.